Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, just a reminder on three announcements. Announcement number one is we have the uh, event for the teenagers on uh, Saturday, August 28th. And Jeff will uh, give me his phone number right now is? 713? 713? 713? 598? 8522. 713? 598? 8522. And uh, give him a call if you're interested. Uh, I know somebody's interested in going. That'll be the football game. Meet up here at the church about 4.30 that Saturday afternoon. Then they'll go out to the game. Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Texans. And we'll see who, who wins. Yeah, somebody from Texas is going to win. That's for sure. We can count on that. Okay, that will be August 28th. Then next Tuesday night, one week from tonight, we'll have uh, uh, Robert Haas, who's the uh, assistant rabbi at uh, Congregation Emmanuel, which is, uh, that's the one down on Sunset that's near Rice University. Uh, he will be here. That's a Reformed synagogue. He'll give us some definitions so everybody knows the di- between the uh, you know, Reformed, conservative, and conservative, Judaism is not conservative. And Reformed isn't Reformed like in, 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 in Christianity. Reformed is let's go back to the Bible. Reformed Judaism is let's get away from the Bible. Um, it's, it's more liberal than conservative. So just so you can understand some of the <laughs> distinctions there so you don't get too confused. Then you have Orthodox and then uh, ultra-Orthodox and Reconstructionist. And the terms Reconstructionist, Reformed, and Conservative as they apply to Judaism have nothing to do with how those terms are applied to Christianity. Isn't religion fun? We just get all confused. So that will be next week, and he's going to talk about how uh, import, uh, the importance of the uh, days of awe, the high holy days, uh, the yamim, uh, norim, the high holy days, days of awe for Judaism and how how they're observed in uh, different uh, groups within uh, within Judaism. That will be next week, 8 to 9, and then we'll have some uh, refreshments and noshing afterwards. Third announcement is that on the 31st, two weeks from tonight, we'll have a uh, town hall meeting here to discuss uh, various different things, ideas, just sort of a brainstorming session for different people, uh, especially related to prep school kids, ideas like that, and uh, taking care of some things. So uh, mark all those on your calendar. Now tonight is our <coughs> 240th lesson and last lesson on uh, on Revelation. So if you have any questions that come up, in tonight's lesson are things that have been uh, burning a hole in your brain over the last uh, six years, three months, and one week since uh, I began this study. Actually, I began the study on May the 9th when I was still at Preston City, Connecticut. So uh, we have a few, about 20 extra lessons in here because when I moved down here, I had to back up because the congregation here was about three months behind, so I had to kind of do a loop 
there somewhere between Revelation uh, 1 and 2 to get everybody um, everybody caught up in in the uh, in the study. So we've got about 240 hours, and we've covered lots of doctrines in Revelation, uh, doctrines not only related to prophecy, but uh, key doctrines related to the spiritual life, uh, salvation versus, uh, as well as Christian life doctrines, uh, worship, uh, contemporary Christian music, uh, angelic conflict, uh, the role of Israel in history, uh, the Messiah, the Trinity, uh, the various uh, judgments and rewards, plus numerous other things, have all been covered uh, many different ways. So <clears throat> just this one long book, long study, covers a good bit of Scripture and could give somebody a, a pretty good understanding of many different doctrines uh, within the Scripture. So before we get started, and I'm go, go, going to do another overview, a little bit different from what I've done before, but another overview type uh, study just as a final way for us to go back over everything that we studied, get it in our heads one last, not ultimately last time, but one last time in this study so that uh, when somebody asks you a question, uh, you will say, you know, Pastor Dean taught that some time ago, and I'll, uh, I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> but I know I heard it. Okay, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're spiritually ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, complete this study of the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John to go back over the things that we have learned and just to synthesize all of the uh, studies that we've made over the last six years and to put them uh, once again into our thinking so that we can just consolidate these uh, various uh, doctrines and the things that we've studied so that uh, God the Holy Spirit can uh, use those in our spiritual life and in opportunities to and uh, things that we talk to with other people and as we come to understand the things that are going on around us today. Father, we pray that you would uh, just encourage us with the uh, basic theme of this uh, book and remind us of the importance of being uh, daily ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the book of Revelation, uh, called um, <clears throat> in the typically in the King James Version, you'll have on the title page uh, what's up on the screen, the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Actually, it is not the revelation of John. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. The word, the Greek word translated revelation is the Greek, is the word apocalypsis, which means an unveiling or a disclosure. So it has to do with, with opening up or unveiling or, re, or revealing to us information that we wouldn't know uh, otherwise. Uh, as we have gone through this book, these 22 chapters in the last six years, we've looked at a number of different doctrines because these are fundamental to understanding this book. When I started six years ago, one of the things that I had come to realize is that in teaching in the area of prophecy, what theologians call eschatology, from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last things or the study of last things or prophecy, 
come come to realize that this is really the top of the pyramid. If you take all the doctrines in Scripture and all of the books of Scripture and put them into a pyramid-type uh, format, the apex of that pyramid is eschatology and the book of Revelation. Because in terms of eschatology, in order to properly understand what the Bible teaches about future things, you have to have already resolved in your own thinking and matured in your thinking in, for example, bibliology, which is the study of the Bible and the authority of the Scripture and the canon of Scripture, what is accepted in the canon, what's not. There are various extra-canonical books that call themselves uh, uh, revelations or apocalypses and that have, that are not accepted in the canon. You also have to have an understanding of Old Testament unfulfilled prophecy passages. There are many passages in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, um, all of these passages have not been fulfilled yet and they all have to do with events that occur in what we have described as Daniel's 70th week or that seven-year period of time known as the uh, tribulation uh, period, which is a return to an emphasis on Israel as God's people as opposed to the emphasis today of the church as, as God's people. And so if you don't understand these, these basics of theology, bibliology, theology proper right away when you get into Revelation uh, chapter 1, there is this uh, vision that John has, uh, or the statement that John has related to uh, the throne of God. In verse 4, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So you have a Trinitarian statement at the very beginning, focusing on the Father or the doctrine of patrology, and then an emphasis on the seven spirits, pneumatology, Jesus Christ, uh, Christology. And then there is the emphasis that he is the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth, who are the kings of the earth? And that phraseology related to the kings of the earth and the earth dwellers is uh, foundational to understanding a major segment of uh, or major group of people referred to uh, throughout the apocalypse, often uh, writers of scripture refer to the revelation as either the revelation or or the apocalypse. So from the very beginning, you get into theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, petrology, uh, bibliology. You get into uh, issues related to uh, salvation when you get into the uh, seven letters to the seven churches. Are these uh, promises of, of rewards and blessing to overcomers? Does that have to do with salvation or does that have to do with the spiritual life? And so you have to uh, develop there. You have to have already resolved many of the issues within the, the branches of theology before you ever get to the book of Revelation. You also have to have a firm grasp, as I stated already, of the Old Testament. Specifically, I think Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those, and Zechariah, those four are foundational. If you don't understand the symbolism, the imagery that's present in those four books, 
You're lost when you get to Revelation. You can't get to Revelation and think that you learn what the various symbols and illusions mean if you haven't figured it out contextually in terms of the those initial uh, <coughs> those initial visions and revelations that were given to the prophets in the Old Testament. So what Revelation does is it goes back to all of these passages in the Old Testament, all of these various threads. And it weaves them together, and finally you take all these loose threads that have been hanging out there uh, since the Old Testament was finished, and they're all tied together in the book of Revelation. And the only way we can possibly understand the book of Revelation is if we interpret it according to the normal plain usage of language. You can't understand the book of Revelation if you uh, impose upon it some sort of allegorical uh, allegorical approach, which has been too often the case throughout uh, the history of Christianity. Uh, the prophecy has been understood, as I pointed out many times, in one of three ways historic, uh, throughout the history of the church. The and if you just think of it this way, twice we're going to use this breakdown, past, present, future. Everybody here can remember those three things, past, present, future. And in terms of interpreting prophecy, there are those... <clears throat> within the history of Christianity who have tried to say that these these passages like Matthew 24, which is referred to as the Olivet Discourse when Jesus was teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they said, what are going to be the signs of your coming? And he talked about wars and rumors of wars and famines and disease and, and pestilence. And then he uh, said, when you see these things happen and when you see the abomination of desolation take place in the temple, then flee to the mountains. And there will be a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen before. So is he talking about something that has not yet been fulfilled or something that was already fulfilled? And those who hold to a preterist, or past interpretation, interpret that to be something that is already fulfilled, that Jesus came uh, invisibly in judgment on Israel in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and by the Romans and the destruction of the temple. Uh, we don't believe that. That's a past tense view. Uh, it's become, a, it, it, it disappeared from history for about a hundred years and has been resurrected, uh, like many other heresies in the last 20 or 30 years or so. Then you have another view that really dominated, uh, most of, uh, Christian history from about 250, uh, 8250, 200 to 250 up to the present, and that's called historicism. And historicism is indicated by that middle word, present. Past is preterist, historicism is present, and that is you can look at what's going on currently in, in, in history and you can try to identify uh, contemporary events with certain things going on between Revelation 4 and 19. Remember, 4 through 22 is all future in our view, but in their view, we're somewhere in there, so we ought to be able to identify the Antichrist, and we ought to be in, identify the woman and the beast that the woman is writing from uh, Revelation 17 and 18, and we ought to be able to look at current events and discern how close we are to the second coming of Christ. And because this view dominated Christianity up until the early 19th century, or well, it began to change in the mid uh, 
mid-18th century, but it really extended its influence on into the 19th century when futurism began to be systematized more. We still have elements of this kind of thinking today. One classic example from one of our own is Hal Lindsey. You know, I've known Hal probably 20, 30 years, uh, talked to him occasionally, read a lot of his books, read The Late Great Planet Earth, as I think maybe many of you did back when it, well, some of you are too young to have read it when it first came out, but um, it came out about 1970 or 71. Uh, Dwight Pentecost at Dallas Seminary accused him of plagiarism. Uh, Bob Feem accused him of plagiarism. Probably half a dozen other professors that he had who taught dispensational uh, premillennial uh, view of the scriptures accused him of plagiarism because he took every, everybody taught the same thing. He took his notes and he cobbled them together and put them into a series of lectures that he frequently uh, gave as a staff member with Campus Crusade for Christ. And then a ghostwriter by the name of C.C. Carlson came along and said, well, why don't you write this up in a book? So he gave her all of his notes and she wrote it up in a book. And that's how Late Great Planet Earth came along. And it's a, last time I looked, it sold like 30, 35 million copies. And, uh, of course, uh, Hal was very gracious and a good bit of the royalties went to, uh, went to her. But in that, he, he has these elements of historicism because he looked at this generation there, that phrase in Matthew 24 when Jesus said, those who see the, the generation that sees these signs will not pass away. Uh, Hal took the view that a generation is 40 years, and so the beginning of these signs would have been either 1948 when uh, Israel became a nation again on May the 14th of uh, 1948 when they they were uh, a brand-new nation for the first time in almost 2,000 years. Uh, he said if you start there, then a generation's 40 years, that's 1988. That's the return of Christ, so the rapture has to occur by 1981. I read that when I was in college in 1974 and thought, seven years and then, you know, boy, the rapture's got to occur real soon, and a lot of people thought that. Uh, but he hedged his bets a little bit. He said, well, maybe the time frame doesn't, uh, the dominoes don't start falling and the clock doesn't start running until uh, 1960. Um, 1968, right, or 67, 67, when the uh, uh, Jerusalem was retaken in the uh, uh, <clears throat> in the Six Day War, and they uh, and the and the Jews recaptured the uh, Temple Mount, and when that happened, um, and they once again had control of the Temple Mount. Of course, they gave operational control back to the uh, back to the Arabs. But when that occurred, some people said, ah, this is when the clock starts ticking. So 40 years or a generation from now, uh, 1968 to uh, 2008, second coming's got to occur by 2008. What are they doing? They're date setting. And that was typical of historicism. And one of the things that happened in the 19th century was that people got tired of historicism because there were always groups coming out and saying, Jesus is coming back next week. Let's go meet him. And after a while, everybody gets discredited because Jesus doesn't come back. And uh, and so these date setters uh, and these uh, prophecy mongers had discredited themselves. But we still have people today 
within dispensationalism who are still trying to date set and think that somehow because things look as bad as they do and because the uh, Arabs have been all stirred up like a bunch of hornets for the last uh, 40, 50, 60 years that Jesus' coming is right around the corner. Uh, One thing does not necessitate the other. That's historicism. So if you even think that we must be close because of anything that's happening today, you succumb to historicism, and historicism mixes with dispensationalism like oil and water. You just can't mix them together. And so you're either going to be a futurist or a historicist, and a futurist believes all this happens in the future, but there's no sign of Jesus coming that takes place prior to the rapture. Now, there may be some things that happen today that relate to setting the stage, getting Jews back into the land, setting things up uh, for what happens after the rapture, but that doesn't mean the rapture is any closer than it was 500 years ago. Uh, there's no, nothing to indicate the rapture. Could, Paul thought it would happen in his time. Others think it ha- could have happened in their time. That's the doctrine of imminency. So that's really important to understand these things and make these kinds, uh, make these kinds of distinctions. So we have the past tense view, which is called preterism, present tense view, which is called historicism, and the future tense view, which is called futurism. And we are futurists. And we need to be consistent in our futurism, and not all dispensational scholars are, are that way. So when we look at Revelation, we also have to think in terms of these three words. What are they? Past, present, future. That's the division that we find in the book of Revelation. Past is chapter 1 when the Apostle John was uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he talks about this in the ninth verse, and he says that he was uh, exiled on the Isle of Patmos uh, because of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And while he was there on the Isle of Patmos, uh, he states in verse 10 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet, That means it was loud and it got his attention and he turned to see the voice and there standing in the midst of seven lampstands was the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And he is dressed in a, in the garb of a priest and a judge. And that is crucial for understanding Revelation. If you have one word to describe the book of Revelation, what would it be? Judgment. That's right. Somebody said that. Judgment. It's not about the return of Christ. That's what most people want to emphasize. It is about judgment. And we see this as we go through the book of Revelation. There's judgment on the church. That's what's announced in Revelation 2 or th- two and 3. Be ready. Those who you're, you're failing in some areas, you're succeeding in some areas, those who change and, and overcome are those who will receive special blessings and special rewards. So the judgment on the church is Revelation 2 and 3. There's judgment on the earth dwellers, those who reject God, continue to reject God, reject the truth, never turn from that during the entire seven-year period of the tribulation. They are judged in the three series of judgments, the seal, trumpet, 
and bold judgments. There's judgment on uh, Satan and the demons. This is uh, indicated in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 12. There's judgment on the Antichrist and the false prophet, judgment on the uh, all of the unbelievers at the end of the tribulation period, judgment on the unbelievers that are born during the millennial period and never trust Christ. They're judged at the uh, final Gog and Magog revolt against God and destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. There's the judgment of all unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. The book is about judgment. And so we have to understand that that's the thrust of this book is to to address church-age believers and say that in the words of that famous sermon preached by R.G. Lee at the beginning of the 20th century, that there will be a payday someday. I always like that. Payday someday. There is an evaluation coming, and are you ready? Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming quickly. We just studied that again in the close closing sections of the book. And so John has this vision. Jesus appears as a judge. He's white. His hair is white. It speaks of purification, speaks of holiness. Uh, he's dressed in a robe that goes down to his feet. His, his legs are like burnished bronze. And that just indicates it's this brilliant white light coming off of him, uh, emphasizing purification and judgment. And that's the role of this book is to announce that. So as I said, we have these three words that indicate the, um, the, the book. It starts in Revelation 1. Uh, chapter, I mean, Revelation 1, um, I want to say 19, write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this, past, present, future. So if you think of chapter 1 is what happened in the past, because when Jesus said this to John, he's already talking about things which had just occurred, but that was in the past. Then the things which are, relate to the judgments on the churches and the seven letters to the seven churches and then the things which will take place after these things beginning in chapter 4 through 22, that's future. So once again, past, present, future. Past is the events on Patmos. Present is the church age, Revelation 2 and 3, and then future is Revelation 4 to 22. Now this is a chart that's, uh, not unfamiliar to you, chapter 1 again, the glorified, uh, resurrected, glorified, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ appears to John and commissions him to write down the things which will be revealed to him. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the things which are relating to the seven uh, churches of the church age, and these uh, represent trends, tr- common trends among churches in the uh, church age period. Uh, I do not believe, and I did not teach that these represent successive stages in the church. I don't think that's um, that's uh, viable. But that each of these churches are the seven combined, seven being used in the Bible to express fullness. That these seven churches represent uh, the totality of the uh, successes and failures that could be present in any uh, in any congregation. Uh, in, beginning in chapters 4 through 22, 
We have future events not yet uh, that have not yet occurred. The tribulation period is the longest part of this section from Revelation 4 through the end of Revelation 19, followed by a very brief uh, chapter on the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20, and then the eternal state in Revelation 21 to about 22.5, and then in 22.6 to 21, uh, we have the conclusion or epilogue to the book. So looking back at the... Uh, First part, the seven churches of Revelation are located in what is now Turkey, but at that time it was called either Anatolia, which is the Greek word for east because this uh, land is east of Greece, or it was referred to by the Roman name, the Roman province of Asia, uh, also having to do with that which is in the east. And so these uh, seven churches were all within a day's journey of each other, and this on the eastern uh, end or the western end of uh, what is now modern Turkey and Ephesus. Uh, and if you, it's kind of followed in a uh, clockwise circle starting at about the uh, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock position, uh, Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum and Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and ending up in that lukewarm place of uh, Laodicea. The emphasis here is on ecclesiastical trends uh, during the church age, that these represent the kinds of things that are going to go on in individual believers' lives, their successes uh, and their failures. And so we can't look at them and say, okay, we're somewhere between the church of uh, Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. There have been lukewarm congregations all through the church age. There have been missionary congregations like the Philadelphia Church throughout the church age. There have been um, idolatrous congregations like the church at Thyatira uh, and Sardis throughout the uh, uh, church age. Uh, you have some of each in every generation throughout the church age. The present church age will end with the rapture of the church to, to heaven, but during this period, there is uh, there is an emphasis on our preparation for our future position as the bride of Christ to rule and reign with him. Now, each of these um, short evaluation reports uh, express several different uh, have several different sections to them. There, uh, there's an initial com- commission, the angel, and I pointed out that this is an this is the angel here is not a pastor. Uh, angels never used a pastor anywhere in, in, in are, 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 of a, are of a human leader. An angel always has to do in the scriptures with one of those supernatural beings, that uh, sentient beings that is distinct from the human race. And I pointed out that the angel, as we see based on word usage, has to mean angel. It's never used of anything else anywhere in uh, in the New Testament. And what it indicates is that this angel is the heavenly uh, church or heavenly court reporter, uh, kind of a combination job that we have in our courts. We have court reporters. We have federal marshals who serve warrants and who bring about certain uh, uh, evaluations to the attention of, of the courtroom. And that's the role of this angel. The angel that is this is addressed to is the angelic court reporter who's keeping a record on each of these congregations that will then be presented to the 
uh, Lord Jesus Christ as the court document that's the basis for the evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And so each of these ends with a uh, call at the end, a command to uh, listen and apply the truth. He who has an ear, let him hear. And then there is a challenge, which is a personal promise of reward or blessing to those who respond positively to those commands. These are referred to as overcomers. So these are incentives that are given to believers. Don't just rest on your laurels. Don't be one of those Christians that says, oh, I'm just going to be so glad to be in heaven. I don't care if I'm in the ghetto as long as I'm in heaven. Well, if you're in the ghetto, it's because you didn't understand anything about the spiritual life on this life and you failed in your primary mission to grow to maturity and to glorify God uh, during the church age. You, life doesn't begin when you're a spiritual baby, a spiritual child, a spiritual adolescent. Real life in terms of your spiritual life and your service to God begins when you hit spiritual maturity. And adulthood, just like it does in this life. How many of you all want to be eight-year-olds? Don't hold your hands up. We know there's stresses and problems, and we all want to go back and let somebody else handle it. But that doesn't work spiritually. Okay, so we want, you need to grow up because that's where life begins. So we have a personal promise of reward and various incentives. Uh, to the church of Ephesus, they're promised that if they uh, are overcomers, then they will have access to the tree of life in the paradise of God. That is the uh, special area within the New Jerusalem, uh, and the tree of life lines the uh, river, the roadway where you have the river of life flowing from the throne of God. Uh, and uh, Smyrna, uh, the incentive is to be faithful unto death, and you'll receive the crown of life, one of uh, several different crowns mentioned in the New Testament, and that there would not be a loss of rewards. To the church of Pergamum, they're promised... Uh, Hidden manna, that is a special spiritual food. Uh, plus, they're told that God will give them a white stone with a new name on it. White stones were often used as tickets to, and invitations to special events, and you could get into the uh, Houston Texan football game and go sit in the uh, special boxes where only the owner sits if you have a white stone with your name on it. It's that kind of a thing, so it indicates special, uh, special privilege. Uh, Revelation 2.28 at uh, uh, Pergamum, I believe, they're told that if they hold fast, they'll have power over the nations, and uh, <clears throat> and they will receive the award of the morning star. Uh, then at Thyatira, they're told that they'll have, uh, excuse me, white garments. Their name would not be blotted out of the book of life, which is a way of asserting a positive by way of a negative. If, it's like saying you really will have your name there, in a special way, but you state it in terms of the of the negative, that your name won't be blotted out because you're really saying just the opposite, that it's going to stand out in the book of life and that you will also be praised before God and the angels. Um, at the church of uh, Sardis, they, they promised that their <clears throat> name would be a pillar in the temple of God and that the name of the God, name of the, oh, this is Philadelphia, rather, the name of the city of my God, would be uh, inscribed on those pillars. This is a point of honor. And then to the uh, uh, church of Laodicea, they would co-rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom. We would sit on his throne even as he sat on the Father's throne. That 
wraps up those seven letters to the seven churches. The bottom line is straighten up, repent, meaning to change, uh, straighten out the problems I've just pointed out to you so that you can receive these these rewards. Revelation 4.1, the tone shifts to the future. John states at the beginning of this um, beginning of this chapter, after these things, I looked and behold a door. I can't stay there. Stay. Okay, a door standing open in heaven and the voice which uh, I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after these things. So this is comparable to the um, comparable to the rapture. And this is uh, analogous to the rapture. So John goes to heaven where he is given uh, guidance, where he has a guide who is an angel who's going to take him around. He goes around the throne room of God. He sees the four uh, living creatures who are uh, features like seraphs or cherubim in the Old Testament. And he's before the throne of God that looks like a sea of, of, uh, of emerald glass surrounded by the 24 elders, which are on each side uh, in the picture. And we saw that the 24 elders have to, must, can only refer to the church-age believers. They are representatives of the church-age believers, just as those uh, 300 and some hot individuals up in Washington, D.C. are our representatives. The individuals may change periodically when there are elections, but those 300-plus representatives represent us. They're not just pure symbols. They are uh, representatives. And so uh, just as in the Old Testament, there were 24 uh, groups of priests and that they rotated in terms of one one priest from each of those 24 groups would serve in the temple. So this represents the church-age believer priest. You have 24 of these elders who represent the church. We know that because when you get into Revelation chapter 5, they praise the Lamb because he died for them. They can't be angels because Jesus didn't die for angels. He only died for human beings. They have Stephanos crowns, which are reward crowns, not uh, diademos crowns, which are crowns given to uh, those who are in ruling positions. So they have Stephanos crowns. Uh, and that's the word that's used to describe the crowns, the rewards given to believers. This tells us that before Jesus shows up to take the scroll and to open the seals on the scroll, that the church-age believers have already been raptured and rewarded, and they are seated in heaven ready for uh, the coming events. Now, t- heaven is timeless, so... Uh, the church-age believers can all be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ in what appears to be a second's worth of time for us. But if, uh, especially those who weren't overcomers, uh, may seem like a couple of centuries go by at the judgment seat of Christ. But Revelation 4 and 5 describes that heavenly scene. There is a search, a desperate search for someone who can come and take this scroll from the hand of God. God is pictured sitting on the throne. There is a scroll lying on his open right hand, and they search high and low. No one can be found worthy to open the scroll. This is such a desperate search that the Greek says that the the Apostle John burst out weeping loudly in, 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 in frustration and grief because no one can be found to open the scroll. And then an angel touches him and says, but wait, we have found one. It is the Lamb of God. He is worthy to open the scroll. 
And so this is when we first see uh, Jesus in the role of the lamb, a term that's used for him 27 times uh, in the uh, in the book of Revelation. And so Jesus is, appears as the lamb that was slain, uh, and the uh, 24 elders began to sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. The angels can't say that and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so this, these 24 elders that are singing are singing along with the angels. They're singing back and forth. We studied that uh, in detail. And this is when the Lord Jesus Christ takes the scroll, and then he begins to open it, those seven seals. Now, we also studied the temporal, the time frame. For this period of time of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, the, the reason we know it's seven years is because of a, of a passage, a remarkable prophecy back in Daniel uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Here's the timeline we developed. In that passage, Daniel is told by uh, <coughs> Gabriel, who is the revealing angel here, and he says that, look, there's a time period now for the future of your people. That's Israel. Uh, of 490 years, or 70 periods of seven. Seventy times seven is still 490, I believe. New math hasn't changed that. Uh, 490 years. But it's broken down into three segments. Uh, a one-week period, uh, 62-week, or a seven-year period, a seven-year period of 62, or excuse me, a seven-week period, a 62-week period, that equals 7 plus 62 equals 69, and that leaves a one-week period. Now, each of these weeks are really uh, are really years. So you have a period of 69 weeks of years, or 69 times 7. And then it says, after this, the Messiah, the Prince, will be cut off. Then the people of the Prince who is to come are going to destroy uh, the city of Jerusalem. So um, if you look at uh, the time frames that have been developed, a lot of scholars have worked on this, that the decree given to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls and the defenses of uh, Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes on a Julian calendar. That would be March the 5th, uh, four, or uh, uh, Gregorian calendar, rather, 444 B.C. Uh, Artaxerxes' decree was given from that period to March the 30th, A.D. 33, which is probably the, the Palm Sunday before the crucifixion, that fulfills that time frame. Then the Messiah is cut off the next week at the crucifixion. Then 70 A.D. occurs when Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed. You clearly have a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 70th week is seven years, and it's split by an event referred to as the abomination of desolation. The focal point of these 70 weeks is Israel. That's what one reason, one argument for the removal of the church before that time period is because God, after the, after the crucifixion of Christ, shifted to a new people, the church age, that are a temporary replacement for Israel. Uh, his plan for Israel is put on hold. That doesn't mean Jews can't be saved. Many Jews are saved today. And then after the church is raptured, God's going to return the focus to Israel and fulfill all of his promises, which he made in the Old Testament, uh, to Israel. And so uh, that, it comes, that is the focal point of this last week is Israel. 
So this makes up this seven-year period, three and a half years before the abomination of desolation, three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. Those three and a half years are described as years of judgment. There are three sealed, three judgment cycles, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. I believe the seal judgments and trumpet judgments come in, during the first half for a variety of reasons we've gone over. And then the bold judgments come during the second half of the uh, tribulation period, culminating in the campaign of Armageddon when the Antichrist has invaded Israel, will seek to destroy the Jews. God will return. The Lord Jesus Christ will return to rescue Israel uh, during this time period, during the entire time period of the tribulation uh, period, there will be uh, millions and millions of, of Gentiles as well as Jews who are slaughtered, who are killed, who die during the judgments uh, because of the horrible condi- uh, situation during the tribulation period. The seal judgments began with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, bringing war and famine and pestilence and earthquakes upon the earth. And this parallels what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, when the disciples said, what are the signs of your coming going to be? And the Lord Jesus Christ answered and he said, well, there's going to be many are going to come in my name, false messiahs and false prophets. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be uh, inter- peace is going to be taken from the earth. There will be famines, pestilences, persecutions, martyrdoms, earthquakes, and cosmic disturbances. And in this chart I showed how the, the events in Revelation 6, the seal judgments, uh, parallel what Jesus says at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse uh, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. What you often will hear is people will take those statements. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and false messiahs, and many will come in my name, and they will apply that to the present church age. What's the problem with that? What's it called? Historicism. Jesus, when Jesus were the signs of his coming, if he said wars and rumors of war, let's just take three things. Wars and rumors of war, famine, and disease. Okay. Did they have wars and rumors of war in the Old Testament? Yeah. Did they have famines in the Old Testament? Lots of them. Did they have pestilence in the Old Testament? Lots of them. Did these things characterize the church age? Sure they did. They've been going on ever since, ever since Cain killed Abel. You've had warfare and disease and pestilence and famines and all these things. So if Jesus says these are signs of his coming, then the wars, the international instability, the famines, the diseases that are signs of his coming cannot be the same kinds of wars and diseases and famines that we've had ever since Genesis, can they? If they are, they're not signs. A sign is something that's different. This has to refer to, you know, famines and wars to the umpteenth power that are seriously qualitatively, quantitatively different from the kinds of diseases and wars and famines that have characterized the history of mankind. And that's what you see in Revelation chapter 6. You don't see the kinds of wars that we've had. World War II approached it probably in... uh, 
sort of an analogous way, but World War II and all of the death and destruction that occurred in World War II was nothing compared to what's going to happen in the first half of the tribulation period when half the people on the earth are going to be killed. So we have the uh, first uh, 21 months or so of the tribulation period where you have these seal judgments where you have the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the ashen horse going forth, bringing forth uh, war and famine, uh, death, disease. There will be physical disturbances where there's an asteroid shower covering the whole earth, and the kings and generals and the chief leaders of men hide in caves. And what did they say at the end of Revelation 6? Revelation 6, I think it's verse 19. You know, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of him who is on the throne. They understand by what they say that these are not normal disturbances. These have not been normal wars and famines and pestilences, but these wars, pestilences, and cosmic disturbances are the result of God judging man. It's going to be real clear that God is really mad and is judging the human race. And so they are going to be uh, crawling into the caves uh, to be protected from earthquakes. See, sin has no logic to it. These are then going to be followed by the trumpet judgments, increased disturbances, uh, cosmological disturbances, uh, hail fire coming down on the earth, a burning mountain, which is probably an asteroid of some type, uh, <coughs> smashes into the sea. Uh, another asteroid hits the waters and pollutes the waters. Uh, the sun, moon, and stars become darkened. Then the demons are released towards the end of this period. You have these demonic locusts and the uh, 200 million horsemen that are released. These are demons. And it's at this stage that earth moves to hell. And you have hell on earth because something happens at about this time in the heavens. And this is described in Revelation 12, verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, which is identified as Satan, having seven heads and ten horns, which relates to the kingdom of man coming out of uh, imagery, uh, and the visions of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, and on his head were seven diadems. And so you have the dragon uh, gets, is going to get thrown out of heaven. Now, to understand and interpret that, you also have to understand the four beasts of Daniel and the flow of history in terms of the kingdom of man. Uh, the lion or the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, the lion is Babylon. The bear, the lopsided bear with the uh, three barbecued ribs in his mouth was... Uh, it's always got to be barbecued, right? Um, I've been in Texas too long. Uh, the, <clears throat> the, the bear represents uh, the Median Persian Empire. That's why it's lopsided because the Persians dominated the Medes. Then you have the uh, four-headed leopard, which represents Greece. It's a uh, speedy conquest related to being a leopard, the four heads, the division that occurs after the death of Alexander the Great. And then you have this one indescribable beast that is analogous to in the uh, uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the uh, legs of iron and then further down the feet of iron and clay. That is the uh, Roman Empire and then the revived Roman Empire. Now, at about the midpoint of the tribulation or maybe a little before, Satan gets ejected out of heaven by Michael. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
This is when all of a sudden demons start becoming manifest again to man, just like before the Noahic flood, and it's going to be just a really weird place. And when you tell people this, if they don't have any understanding of the Bible or the Old Testament, they just think you've been smoking something really strange because it sounds strange. You're going to have demons visible on the earth uh, living in Babylon, and it just gets pretty uh, pretty wild. So the dragon then goes on that chapter to describe the role of the dragon is to attack the woman. The woman is described in verse uh, <coughs> 3 as a woman who has uh, 12 stars around her head and uh, uh, standing with the, the sun and the moon, and this represents Israel. Israel gives birth to the son, which is a man-child, which is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the serpent is going to persecute her into the wilderness. And all of this shows that human history is related to this warfare that occurs in heaven. Described in verse 7, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Uh, the dragon and the angels waged war, and they're not uh, strong enough, and so they get uh, the dragon and the angels are ejected from heaven. It's at this same time, the midpoint of the tribulation, that the, the first beast, who's then described in Revelation 13, is going to be uh, receive a fatal wound. I believe that what happens is that he's going to be killed. He's going to then be raised from the dead. What happens in between is he is going to become personally indwelt by Satan, and which brings him back, who brings him back from the dead, which is why he is called the beast from the abyss in Revelation chapter 11. And it's the beast from the abyss who kills the two witnesses, uh, the two prophets that are. Uh, mentioned who have a ministry during the first half of the tribulation period uh, who oppose uh, the Antichrist. After he kills the the two witnesses, he's going to erect his own statue. Uh, He's going to take his place, first of all. He's going to be seated in the temple, the Holy of Holies, to be worshipped. Then he will uh, put his own idol or statue there so that he will be worshipped as God. So we see that's called the abomination of desolation. There are two stages to it. The first stage is his he takes his seat in the Holy of Holies, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and then he will replace uh, himself with the, with the uh, idol or the image that will stay in the temple um, 30 days after he's cast into the lake of fire, according to Daniel 12, 11. During the second half of the tribulation, uh, we saw the pouring out of more judgment upon the earth dwellers. These are the bold judgments. And if you think it was bad before, it really gets bad now, and it is intensified. The rivers are destroyed. Fresh water is destroyed. Fresh water turns into blood. Uh, the sun uh, scorches the earth. Uh, the uh, people on the earth break out in hideous uh, boils. Uh, darkness comes upon the earth. There's earthquake, uh, hail, and all of these things take place as the um, we approach the final campaign of Armageddon. Now, one other thing we saw is that as you go through the book of Revelation, the scene changes, so you have to be, watch this. In chapter 4 and 5, at the beginning of the future period, the focus is on heaven. Then chapter 6, the seal judgments on the earth. Then in chapter 7, we look at the four angels, uh, holding back the winds as God seals the 144,000 Jews who will be evangelists during the tribulation period. Chapters 8 and 9, you're back on the earth again for the trumpet judgments. Chapter 10, you look at the mighty angel 
and uh, his little scroll that he has, which is another uh, series of judgments we're not told about. Then in chapters 11, 1 through 14, we're back on the earth describing the ministry of the two witnesses. In 11, 15 to 12, 12, we're focusing on uh, Satan and the woman fleeing into the wilderness. Uh, Revelation 12, 13 and 14 is back on the earth with the dragon chasing the woman into the wilderness. Uh, that would be chapter 12, verse 13 through chapter 14, rather. Uh, chapter four, 13 deals with um, uh, the first beast and the second beast. Chapter 14 deals with uh, plagues on the earth. Chapter 15, back in heaven with the pouring out of the bold judgments. They're summarized in 16 to 18, uh, chapter 16 through 18, with the, also including the judgments on Babylon. And then in 19, 1 to 16, the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. 1917 through 20 focuses on the millennial kingdom on the earth. Did you get all that? So chapter 17 and 18 focus on the resurrection of Babylon. Now, many dispensationalists, as I pointed out before, used to take this as being a symbol, and some still do, a symbol of <coughs> Rome. But Babylon is never used in a symbolic way as a non-literal term in the Bible. Babylon always means Babylon. Rome means Rome. Jerusalem means Jerusalem. Rome never means Babylon. Babylon never means Rome. Jerusalem never means Rome. Literal interpretation means Babylon's going to be uh, rebuilt as the economic center of the tribulation period. And she, she, Babylon will be the, uh, the reality of all of the worst, of all of the empires that have uh, uh, dominated in uh human history. She's depicted as the woman who rides the beast. We still see this imagery a lot today. It's depicted uh, on the bottom of that slide from a um, <clears throat> two-euro coin, where in the lower right-hand corner there's a picture of the woman riding the beast. Euro, uh, Europus was a, is often depicted the goddess as a woman riding the beast, meaning uh, Europe. And so that imagery is still around uh, today. Uh, the king, the uh, Babylon is depicted as the mother of harlots, that is, uh, all uh, infidelity towards God. And even today we have the, for example, in Luxembourg, you have the, uh, uh, the, the language building for the, for the uh, uh, EU. Well, it, it looks like an, that's the building on the right. Somebody merged this with uh, Bruegel's uh, 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 depiction of the Tower of Babel. But uh, the architects of this building, and I think it's in Strasbourg, rather, in Strasbourg, uh, made it look like an unfinished Tower of Babel. He did it for a reason. This is the trans, uh, translation language headquarters for the European Union. And so he intentionally built the building and designed it to be the unfinished Tower of Babel. I mean, we may think these are a bunch of secular, secular, religiously ignorant people, and they are, but they can't escape the reality of living in God's, God's world and fulfilling prophecy. So Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Revelation 19 judges the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're thrown directly into the lake of fire. Judges Satan. He is bound for a thousand years. Judges the uh, Old Testament, uh, or excuse me, judges those who survived the tribulation, separates them in terms of the sheep and the goats, those who supported Israel, those who did not support Israel. And so this uh, <clears throat> brings us to the center point of this slide, 
where we see this set of judgments taking place. The surviving Gentiles and Jews from the tribulation, Old Testament saints are resurrected and rewarded, and tribulation saints that uh, were martyred during the tribulation are also rewarded. Those who survive go into the millennial kingdom to repopulate, uh, to repopulate the earth during that thousand year period. Uh, during that time, Satan is bound in chains in the abyss. He's released at the end of that period when he is going to lead a rebellion against God. During that millennial period, all of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant, uh, especially in its, uh, in its expansions of the land covenant, Israel will finally possess all of the land God promised to them. In the Davidic covenant, they will be ruled by the greater son of David, who is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the new covenant is uh, enacted and becomes effective at the beginning of the millennial period. Uh, this fulfills Old Testament prophecies to Israel, such as in Zechariah 8.3, where the Lord said, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. At the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, there's a revolt, a revolt. All those who follow Satan, when he's released, are destroyed by fire and brimstone. Then all of the dead uh, unbelievers are brought before the great white throne judgment and judged according to their works. Are they good enough to get into heaven? None of them are, because the only thing that gets you enough righteousness to get into heaven is to have received the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which you get only when you trust in him for salvation. Then the present heavens and present earth are destroyed, and new heavens and new earth are built, and a new Jerusalem uh, descends from heaven onto the earth and is the abode of the saints during the uh, during eternity, uh, eternity future. So that brings us to the end of our study. Nice little fly over there at the end. Hope you got all of that. Pull it all together for you. The key word in Revelation is judgment. Everything comes to an end. God is going to finally resolve the problem of evil. He will bring judgment on all of his rational, sentient, volitional creatures, and he will restrict and confine evil to the lake of fire, and those who have followed God those who have been obedient to his word will dwell upon the earth, some in the New Jerusalem, some outside upon the earth, and God will take up his residence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, upon the earth. Anybody have any questions? No questions? Good. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and have this uh, final review. Help us to remember the import the impact, the thrust of this book, that we are to be ready because Jesus is coming soon. Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage us with these things, and uh, we look forward to our next study and that you will also continue to mature us and grow us spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.